Well, after that, I hate to bring up anything unpleasant. But one of the first thing I wanted to say wasn't that great. <laughs> See by the bulletin cover, good without, good without God, good without God. You know, I was looking up uh, images to use on the bulletin cover. I think that's what I googled: "good without God?" question mark and uh and a lot of the hits were pictures of uh t-shirts you know it says i'm good i'm good without god good without god i don't need god to be good you know a lot of uh, t-shirts like that and uh, the reason i was looking for it i you know looking for that an image like that uh, is uh is that i had read for the first time in american history a majority of americans believe faith is not necessary for morality 56 2017 um, 56% of Americans do not see religious faith as a prerequisite for moral virtue and that's up from 49% uh, in uh, 2011 Pew research no pun intended has nothing not the, not that kind of pew <laughs> and they they attribute the new majority opinion to the rise of the nuns once again not nuns n u n s n o n e s N-O-N-E-S, there's more, there's, you know, the increase of people who believe it's not necessary for God, for, it's not necessary to believe in God for people to live moral lives. Uh, the rise of the nuns. Nuns are people who, you know, where the, where the box says religious preference or, you know, the blank says religious preference, they write none, N-O-N-E. Or they check the box, it says none. And so it's, it's uh, it's easy to see. Well, that's probably where the increase was, because it's it just stands to reason. You know, if you were being if you were being uh, just imagine somebody being uh, uh, polled by Pew Research, and they say, well, do you have a, a particular religious belief or affiliation? You say no. They'd say no, 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 not no. And they say, well, the next question would be, well, since you have no religious belief or affiliation, is it still possible for you to be a good person? Well, well of course. So, uh, you know, who's going to say, well, I don't have any religious affiliation, but no, that's because I'm wicked. You know, it's, <laughs> I'm evil. I say, good. No, they say, sure, sure. I'm a good person. I'm just not a religious person. But I'm a good person. And, of course, if you, you know, you talk to folks, too, like I do. You know, you, one of the things easy to hear is I'm a lot better than a lot of religious people I know, right? <laughs> so it's easy to see how that would that would happen. But there is... It, it, it is a change, though. It is a change in our in our culture. It's a change in our country because that's not what people have thought in the past, and that's not how it started out. That's not that's not what the founders thought. And just to this isn't this isn't my point today, but but just to kind of see that that's been a that there's a real shift in that. The majority of people don't see any connection, any necessary connection between moral goodness and religious faith here's a quote i believe that religion is the only solid base of morals and that morals are the only possible support of free governments that's the fellow who wrote the preamble to the constitution of the united states his, his name's governor morris not governor of anything as his first name governor how's that for putting the 
a burden on you. I had a little two-year-old named Governor, 5, 12, 18. He did get to be Senator from New York, so for a time he was Senator Governor Morris. But he thought, he thought that America, you know, the American form of government could not stand without moral people and that moral people um, could not arise out of anything other than uh, a religious people. And by religion, in the old days, in those days, when they said religion, they were talking about Christian religion. And I'm just talking about religion in general. Here's another quote. Religion and morality are the essential pillars of civil society. That's the guy on the $1 bill. GW number one. Here's, here's another. So anyways, but today, I mean, that's what he said. It's entirely uncontroversial for, you know, uh, at the beginning and then for all of American history up until fairly recently. And now the majority of Americans say, no, you don't need to, you know, one of those pillars, one of those two pillars is unnecessary. Here's another, just one more, just to show you that there's been a significant shift. The moral principles contained in the scriptures, and, and that, by the way, that shows when they're talking about religion, they're not, they're not, they're talking about biblical religion, they're talking about Christian religion. They just use the term religion in a narrower way than we would in our time. The moral principles contained in the scriptures ought to form the basis of all our civil constitutions and laws, all the... Well, can you imagine a politician just saying that much? I don't have this in my notes to say. Can you imagine a politician today saying, the moral principles contained in the scriptures ought to form the basis of our laws? Whew, we would know about that, wouldn't we? He'd be in the news, or she. Anyway, all the miseries, this quote continues, all the miseries and evils which men suffer from, vice, crime, ambition, injustice, oppression, slavery, he said, slavery and war proceed from their despising or neglecting the precepts contained in the Bible. It's Noah Webster. He comes a little after the founders. He's like the next generation, but same prevailing opinion. Uh, the religion of the Bible is the basis for the security of a civil society of free men and women. All right, well, that's kind of like, those are like Fourth of July quotes, you know. <laughs> but uh, some people say, well, well, you know, they had to, they, sure, they had to say things like that uh, for political expediency. They were paying lip service to religion. There were a lot more religious people back then. That was a way to just curry favor to get votes. And, you know, it's it was... They just uh, got popularity with that, and they just they just kind of had to say things like that. That's like of a flag and apple pie, and and it was just a, a kind of a throwaway thing that didn't mean a whole lot. But and maybe that's possible. Maybe that played a part. But it's also possible that this is part of it too. That the ability to think deeply, uh, to uh, an aptitude for close and careful reasoning 
was a lot more common before television, before radio, before the internet, before the soundbite, before the 140 character tweet. Um, if you don't think people, if you don't think that, try reading a Puritan sermon. Try reading a Puritan sermon and just imagine a farmer sitting there in the pews <laughs> and his wife and his kids. Uh, imagine a sermon that used the term 13thly and then tell yourself that we are their intellectual betters. <laughs> but a- anyway, but the point is that there's, this, this is a signif- there's a significant shift. And, and in, the way, in a way, the nuns, N-O-N-E-S, they're right about morality. They're right about this, but not in the way that they imagine. And here's, here's how it's true. The Bible freely admits that belief in God is not necessary for a man to live morally. Uh, the Bible admits that there, it's more than an admission, it claims as a point in, in favor of the existence of God, in favor of God being the author of morality, the idea that there are people who do not believe in God, who nevertheless believe in right and wrong, and they live morally at least sometimes. The Bible says that's not a bug, that's not a flaw in our argument, it's a feature. Did you, did you know that? The, the Bible turns that reality that people have a sense of right and wrong and behave morally, even apart from belief in God, into an argument for God as the source of morality. Here's the passage, Romans 2. For all who have sinned without the law, they don't know the law. He's talking about Gentile people. They don't know the law. All who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law, and all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. For it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. For when Gentiles who do not have the law, in other words, people who don't know God, people who don't recognize God as the great lawgiver, idolaters, atheists, any, anything but people who believe in the one true God. That's who we're talking about. When they, by nature, do what the law requires, when they do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves, or they serve as a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written in their, written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness, and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them on that day when according to my gospel God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus so our New Testament this is not an obscure passage is it I'm pointing back there because I can see it but it's over here our New Testament says yes there are and there have always been People who do not know the God of the Bible, they don't know the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, who nevertheless behave morally, at least sometimes, and sometimes their thoughts uh, about morality accuse them, 
I've done wrong. <laughs> and sometimes they excuse them. They have done right. So our Bible says, yes, you don't have to believe in God to be good. You don't have to believe in God to be good because people who don't believe in God obey, they, they do what's right sometimes. But why is that? It's because God has written his law in their hearts. God has given them a sense of right and wrong. Even though they don't believe in God. I, I have a, well, Robin and I have a hard shell Calvinist dear friend from our past. We haven't spoken to him. You're Don, Donnie, um, what's the last name? Williams, Donnie Williams. Full, and and I, it, it, just uh, if you, if I'll just say this real quick for people who are familiar, he's full tulip, full tulip, total depravity, unconditional election, limited atonement, irresistible grace, perseverance of the saints, and he he that's spelled you know that's the Calvinist, the five points of Calvinism, and he defined that total depravity part in the harshest way possible to to my way of thinking, as in the belief that unregenerate, unsaved. People, you know, unbelievers, people were capable of no good deed whatsoever because sin permeates the whole man, which it does. <laughs> sin permeates the whole man, and, and it, everything he does is tainted by it somehow. And his concern, and the concern of people who believe that, is that it would be absolutely clear and certain that salvation is all of God's grace, that man can't turn to anything himself and say, I'm good. I'm a good person. God should accept me the way I am because I'm a good person. And he was concerned, you know, and other people believe this, that there would be nothing that they could point to as any good deed at all because they're all tainted well that's the concern that was the concern so that's but that's where he ended up that people who don't know the lord aren't capable of any good deed whatsoever he he and his wife and robin and i we spent time together socially they're they're really dear friends and on one occasion we we're having dinner we we're going to have a game night and something in the the women sent us to the store for something. And when the cashier, we were together, the, me and him, and the cashier gave him his change, he said, uh, thank you very much. And we're walking out the door. Um, this, I'm going to tell you this story, and you're going to be glad you don't have friends like me and this other fellow. <laughs> other than me, I hope. I said, why'd you, why'd you say that to her? And he said, why'd you say what? I said, you said, thank you very much. Why'd you do that? You gave her the impression that she had done something good and praiseworthy, but you know she's just a wicked sinner. She, the only reason she gave you the change is because she'd have got fired if she didn't, and if, if she had her way, she would, she would steal it and do much worse than that because she's totally depraved, <laughs> incapable of any good deed. I was trying to make a point. <laughs> The Bible doesn't claim that people without Christ are incapable of moral behavior. It doesn't say that. 
But it does say that their moral sense, to the extent that it is truly moral, came from God himself. Whether they believe in him or not. God has put it in the hearts of people generally, uh, a sense of right and wrong, and it comes from him. It's, it, it, it isn't that morality is impossible apart from belief in God. It's that the moral, the moral sense itself comes from God. The, the Bible is saying something much more profound and much more true than that a belief in God is necessary for people to behave morally. Everyone's sense of right and wrong, to the extent that it's still accurate, <laughs> comes from God. God planted it in, in you, he planted it in me, and in people generally. And here's what, here's what the biblical argument is. That anyone wants to be a good person, that anyone wants to be a good person, is evidence that they're made in God's image, is evidence that, that God uh, made them and made them want to be. That, that people feel a need to think of themselves as good people. Do people, do, you know, we live in a post-Christian age, really. Do people care about being good people? Every, practically everybody cares deeply about being, thinking of themselves and, th and other people thinking of them as, as good people. Uh, our world, our generation, it brims with evidence of that. Here's, here's like in our, just the way things are. You watch the news, you watch television, you hear the way people talk. You, that's wrong, says everybody about everything all the time, right? That's wrong. There's a, there's a sin of the week all the time. You know, sin of the week, sin of the year, sin of the month. What, sexual, sexually predatory behavior is wrong and somebody needs to pay. <laughs> Racism is wrong. Slavery is an evil. The horrors of war, it's bad. Oppression's wrong. Bullying is wrong. Smoking indoors is wrong. <laughs> and, and on and on. It's, it's consumed. Our world, our generation, is consumed with right and wrong. And who should pay? And here's something else. There should be a price. Our world, our generation, is consumed with the idea of justice. So, do you see the work of God in the conscience of of an unbeliever and Romans 2 says you should see it it's right there it's there when he's offended at wrongdoing it's there when someone thinks they've been victimized and they have it's there when they it's there when they recognize the evils of the past is evil it's there when they if they tell a lie and they scold themselves for it it's there when they do good and they approve of themselves in their own mind for doing that. 
And it's never a part of the Christian argument, by the way, to call good evil. Our argument is not that our unsaved neighbor cannot be a good guy as good guys go. Our argument is that God has put it into his heart to want to be a good guy. God has put into, and if we're allowed to press a little bit, he's put into him, everybody we know, a sense of right and wrong that even he has failed to live up to. And deep down, he knows it. Our argument is that whoever we're speaking to, you need a Savior. (laughs) And you know it. Because you've sinned against a standard of righteousness that God put in your heart. And it's true of you, it's true of me, it's true of the pew, it's true of the pulpit, it's true of people who have seen neither pew nor pulpit for a long, long time, or ever. There is none who is righteous altogether, who can, none who can stand before a holy God on his own merits. In Romans 2, it speaks of the time when God will judge the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. It's a, that's frightening, isn't it? <laughs> the things no one else knows, the things that the sins covered up by time, or the, or how about this? The sins done entirely within the confines of the inner man. Samuel Johnson, 18th century uh, author, said, "Every man knows that of himself which he dares not tell his dearest friend." Still true. <laughs> And I, I think we can go further than that. Sometimes truths about ourselves are so painful we've decided not to tell ourselves. I've told you before, and I'm going to say it again. I apologize if it is, oh, I've heard this before and it bores you, but I think it's on point. At NHC, National Healthcare, almost every week, seeing people just come in and I saw a, uh, the father of a high school friend of mine and I introduced myself and he knew me as soon as I said the name he knew he said Chris Bunn do you remember the time when you and Rita and Alan and Sandra all got into got into all the unlocked cars on our street and rolled them down to the end of the cul-de-sac I had to talk the police out of taking you all in. I, I explained to them that, I explained to the police that you were all just stupid kids and you thought it would be funny if everybody looked outside and the cars that were parked on the hill were, weren't there and they would think their cars were stolen, but they weren't. They're all down there at the end of the cul-de-sac. And, and I promised them that you were truly, truly sorry and that you would never do anything like that again. <laughs> And I'll tell you the truth. I hadn't thought about that for years and years and years. I had completely forgotten about it, except when he brought it up, I remembered it. <laughs> but I honestly, I had forgotten all about that. 
But when Robin and I went to Texas last summer, and we saw so many people that we hadn't seen for 40 years. We hadn't seen them for 40 years. And it was amazing how we remembered things about them that they had forgotten, and they had remembered things about us that we had forgotten. And some of them we remembered when they said it, and some of it, even after they said it, I don't remember that. I said, oh, yeah, oh, yeah, that was, <laughs> this is what happened, this was said. Now, here's the question. Do you think people in general tend to put out of their minds those events in their lives that don't reflect on them so well? <laughs> because they really, really want to think of themselves as good people. And good people don't say things like that or do things like that. Do you think that when the books are opened, there could be things that you had forgotten all about? But they happened and they had their effect. Here's another one I, I know of. Uh, almost all of you know this. I've, I've told you about another, the mother of a friend of mine at NHC. I'll cut to the chase, but she, she still talks to me. She does this every single week. She still talks to me like I'm the 16-year-old she met with her son almost 50 years ago, half a century. <laughs> and she talks to me like I'm that, that kid she first met. All right, well, I've told you this too, many of you, but I, I'm putting up my things one, one uh, Tuesday, getting ready to leave, and... And she says, where are you going now? I said, well, I, I guess I'm going back to the church. She said, good, that's where you need to go. <laughs> you need to spend a lot more time there. <laughs> and, and she's right. Not, now, she's not right like there's something magical about going to a place. You know, not, not that. But she's right in this way. I have to get back to God. I don't mean that God's here, <laughs> nowhere else, but, but she's right that I have to go back to God again and again and again because he alone is my and your moral true north, right? And he alone can show me in his word and by his spirit where I have excused myself, justified myself, have forget, conveniently forgotten some of the things I needed saving from. He alone can sanctify me. He, can, he alone can grow in me so what he calls holiness. I was thinking when we were singing, this, this passage came to mind where uh, uh, the author of Hebrews is speaking to people that need to go back a grade. He says, solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to discern good from evil. Because while, while God places in the heart of all men a sense of right and wrong, here's what's also true. The longer we're away from him and the further we depart from him, the more susceptible that sense of right and wrong is to corruption, to deterioration, 
even perversion. And it can get to the point where we look at evil and call it good, and we look at good and call it evil. Romans 1 explains how things got the way they are morally. God let them go the way of idolatry because they wanted a God they made rather than a God who made them. God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their own bodies among themselves, they, they, because they wanted to. That's what they wanted. And Romans up sums it up this way. and I've, You can read this with me. 128. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetous, malice. They're full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They're gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents. What's that doing in this list? What's <laughs> Dis- well, There it is. Foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless, they, though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. And note that last part. They give approval. In other words, they say, they say to people who are like them in morality, they say, way to go. How bad brave you are how how true you are to yourself how authentic how bold how courageous well isn't that right where we are (laughs) isn't that exactly where we are In, in some ways important ways in ways that really affect people's lives. Not altogether, but in some ways, evil has become good, good has become evil. The conscience can become seared so that it just doesn't work anymore. It not only excuses evil, but it mistakes evil for a positive good. And and you and so here you and I just can easily, we're drifting the same current. Excusing things that our parents condemned. <laughs> Winking at what shocked people before us. Accepting in ourselves what the Bible says must be overcome in those who will enter the kingdom. So we need, so here's the other truth. Here's the other side of the coin. We need the Lord to keep our moral compass. I say keep. To get our moral compass pointed to the true north. The moral sense itself comes from God. But how sin erodes it, corrupts it. Eventually the point where we look at good and say it's evil. We look at evil, call it good. Uh, That's all of us. That's all of us. Look at this verse, this passage. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. 
The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them your servant is warned. In keeping them there is great reward. Recalibration, recalibration, recalibration. All right, so what's the, what are the... Uh, so what's today? What are the takeaways? Let me just say three real quickly. Here's first. If you do this, if you do, stop thinking and talking in terms of the world being full of good people and bad people. Especially if you've got the Christians figured out as the good people and everyone else is the bad people. It just doesn't fly. Because Christians can be and have been and will be observed doing bad things. And non-Christians can be observed and have been observed and will continue to be observed doing good things. But even more importantly than it than it's rings untrue to people that the Christians are the good people and everyone else is the bad people. Even more important than that, that isn't the biblical argument. The Bible's position is that everybody, or almost everybody, unless they're just deep into that seared conscience. <laughs> is capable of doing good, but everybody does evil. The Bible's position is that every last one of us has been infected by the sin virus, and sin inevitably tends to skew the moral sense, even mine, where I have to recalibrate and come to the true north all the time daily every one of us needs the Lord to set us right it, it isn't good people and bad people it's people who are being saved and people who are not it's people who are being transformed into his moral image in a lifelong process and those whose moral sense is subject without correction to being skewed by sin. And if someone is hearing us say, I mean hearing, you know, like how they're translating it in their own mind. If someone is hearing us say, I'm good and you're bad and you need to be good like me and Jesus is the one who can do it for you, then either they're not hearing us right or we're not saying it right. <laughs> That's not the gospel. Here's the gospel. For Christ also suffered for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. 
being put to death in the flesh but made alive in the spirit. That's the gospel. Here it is again. The saying is trustworthy. That's 1 Peter 3, by the way. 1 Peter 3.18, if you didn't recognize the verse. Here it is again. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. That's the gospel humbly put. So that's, that's first. It is not to think of the world, not to talk of the world in terms of the bad people over there and the good people in here. Second, make the, more, make the, the biblical argument about morality. Make the biblical argument, and it is not that... It's impossible for people to do good things apart from belief in God. That's not the biblical argument. Here here it is, Romans 2, just to say it again. It is the fact that your conscience, your sense of right and wrong that sometimes commends you and sometimes condemns you already shows the work of God in your heart. You, you have differences with people, right, about what's morality. But you believe murder is wrong, right? God wrote that into your heart. You value justice and mercy and kindness. Why do you, why do you value, we say, I think this is the biblical argument to make with people who don't believe in God or don't believe God's necessary for morality. You value justice, mercy, kindness. You know why? Because God is just and God is merciful and God is kind and he's written it into you, his uh, creature made in his image. Yes, sin skews our sense of right and wrong. It skews mine too. I like to forget the bad things I've done. I like to justify myself. I like to think of myself as a good person. And I need correction all the time. But God has put in you, we say to everybody, a a standard of righteousness that even you have failed to meet. And that's why you need a Savior. That's why I need one too. And, And for goodness sake, for goodness sake, I'll just throw this in. We're talking about how to make the biblical argument please stop complaining about this is 2a <laughs> but please stop complaining about moral relatives relativism the idea that everyone should be free to define their own morality and his own sense of right and wrong everybody everybody these days believes that morals are absolute that there's absolute morals if you say you know the trouble today there are no absolute morals people don't believe in absolute morals Everybody believes in absolute morals. Everybody believes in right and wrong, and whatever they think is right and wrong is right and wrong for everybody. And if you don't believe that, if you want to make a test, try telling people that it would be wrong for you personally because what you think is right and wrong to bake a cake for somebody under certain circumstances. They say, you better bake that cake. (laughs) 
Or, or try saying that, that it would be right under certain circumstances to discriminate on the basis of gender or sex. See if, they th- see if anybody thinks that morals are relative. There are no moral relatives any, anymore. We're simply arguing for a standard of morality that comes from God. And third, here's the last thing, and I'll leave you with this. Pursue, nurture, desire the queen of the virtues, which is not controversial in its idea, and that's love. And affection, once again, I won't defend this, I'll just state it, an affection of our hearts that desires and seeks the good of others so strongly it moves us to action. We have to act on it. That's the, that's the queen of the virtues, isn't it? Moral is the top of the line of moral behavior. It's greater than faith, 1 Corinthians 13 says, greater than hope. It'll never end. It's a defining attribute of God himself, 1 John. God is love. So John says, 1 John says, everyone who knows God will reflect that love. God loved his enemies which was us, made us his children. And that's the love that's poured out in our hearts. We're even to love our enemies. Now we're talking about this argument, how you talk with people, how you argue with, or how you present arguments, not argue with, but what do you say, what do you say about morality? Boy, we're even to love our enemies. Wouldn't that surprise them? That would sure show them something different the way here's how countercultural it would be if we would do this the way they have it figured those who don't have enough love by their wrecking must be silenced must be crushed must be run out of society you know leave it leave it to the world the flesh and the devil to to uh to make it where you can show your love by really hating people don't have enough of it There's something perverse there, isn't there? You can show your love by your vehemence, your hatred for people that you don't think have enough of it. However, we're to love as God loved and loves us. And why? Because that's the highest part of morality that he's put in us. He's love. He created us. It's in us to do this. Let's pray. Uh, Lord, teach us to love as you love us. Uh, Give us love for our enemies like your love for us while we were your enemies. Uh, Help us to be bold in our witness, to speak the truth in love, to show your heart while we speak your truth. Uh, Grant saving faith to any outside of Christ that they might know your love in its fullness in Christ. We pray in his name. Amen.